Welcome to Clearly KC, a podcast produced by the National Keratoconus Foundation, featuring information about life with keratoconus. I'm your host, Dr. Melissa Barnett. Today's episode is about corneal transplantation and eye banking. I am honored to introduce you to my friend and colleague, Dr. Jennifer Lee. Dr. Lee is a professor in the Department of Ophthalmology and Vision Science at the University of California, Davis. She received her MD and completed her residency in ophthalmology at the Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. She then joined us at UC Davis many years ago and completed a fellowship in cornea, external disease, and refractive surgery. She is currently the Cornea and External Disease Service Director and Fellowship Director at UC Davis. Her academic and research interests are in the areas of corneal transplantation and eye banking. And she's the current chair of the Eye Bank Association of America and its immediate past chair of the Medical Advisory Board of the EBAA. Welcome, Dr. Lee. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Barnett. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Oh, this is great. So we're going to first start talking about the eye bank and then talk about corneal transplantation. What are your responsibilities as chair of the eye bank Association of America? The eye bank Association of America is the organization that involves all eye bank. Our members include nearly every single eye bank in the United States. And our vision is really to help with restoration of sight worldwide through obviously corneal transplantation and eye banking and that realm of research and service. How many eye banks are there in the U.S.? There are about 77 eye banks in the United States currently. 77? Give or take. In all regions? Yeah, they cover most areas of the United States. Uh, They come in all shapes and sizes. Some are quite small. Some are very, very large with multiple sites across different states. Uh, And the EBAA is really committed to ensuring the quality of donor tissue that our patients receive when they have a corneal transplantation. So the EBAA, the Ibanc Association of America, is actually the very first of its kind in terms of organizations to help uh, create medical standards for donation and for transplantation. Um, the first of its kind to have an accreditation process for its member eye banks. And so the commitment is really to ensure that we have safe and quality donor tissue for all of our patients. Great. Can you tell us a little bit more about the donor tissue? What happens when the tissue comes in? So donation, of course, is a critical part for for everything that we do. I think so often when we start talking about corneal surgery and transplantation, we get super excited about what I call the sexy part of our job, the the surgical part, right? We always love talking about the surgery. But the reality is that none of us could do what we do without the donors. And that's the part that I always try and emphasize uh, to people that I talk to is that we could not do anything that we do without donors and donor families. And so when a person passes away, they often have made what we call first person consent for donation. So for instance, when you get your driver's license, you can consent to being a donor. And that's one way in which iBanks and other organizations like it 
are able to have donors for things like corneas. Um, if you've made your wishes known before you've passed away, we still want to make sure that your family's on board with that decision. And so we will always consult with the family um, and obtain uh, consent from the family as well to recover that corneal tissue so that you can be a donor. Once that tissue has been recovered and brought to the eye bank, we have technicians who are trained in handling that tissue, evaluating that tissue, making sure that tissue really meets the standards that are set by the iBank Association of America. And then that tissue gets distributed to surgeons in the local region, across the US and across the world. Wow, how quickly does the tissue get across the world? The tissue is good for 14 days, at least for US iBanks. Our storage is good for 14 days. And so from the time of the donor's passing to the time where it has to be implanted, we have a 14-day window. And we're really, really fortunate in the United States. We have just a very robust network of iBanks that work together to make sure that we always have the tissue that we need for our surgeries. And we're one of the few countries in the world that is able to actually help places outside their, their own borders to provide tissue for patients in need all around the world. That's quite inspirational. It is pretty remarkable what I think our iBanks do, and I'm very, very grateful for them. And again, for the donors and the donor families. Excellent. So maybe moving on to the sexy part a little bit, but first, <laughs> a, a common myth is that a corneal transplant is always needed for patients with keratoconus. But there are many different types of specialty contact lenses. We have corneal cross-linking to avoid corneal transplantation. What has been your experience? My experience has really been that the options for patients with keratoconus has exploded even in my career over the past decade or so. I agree, I think probably even 15 or 20 years ago, Dr. Barnett, you probably experienced this. A lot of patients really had no options. Their keratoconus continued to progress, got worse and worse and worse. You couldn't get the contact lenses to fit. They'd keep popping off of patients' eyes, and you'd ultimately go to the point of needing a corneal transplant. But over the past 10, 15 years, scleral lenses have really changed everything for my patients. Dr. Barnett, as many of you probably are aware, has been a huge help for so many of my patients who otherwise really wouldn't have other options or would have ended up ultimately needing surgery. But with these new types of scleral contact lenses, they find better vision, better comfort, and they keep their own corneas, which I always tell my patients, it is better to keep your own cornea if you can. Corneal transplantation is great, but having your own is always going to be better. And now, over the past five, six years or so, we have the option of cross-linking here in the United States. Corneal collagen cross-linking is a treatment where we essentially try and strengthen the cornea so that it no longer bulges forward as it does typically in keratoconus. The idea is to catch patients much earlier in the stages of their disease while they're still progressing and to stall the disease progression in its tracks so that hopefully you never get to that point where 
you would need a corneal transplantation. And some of those patients don't even end up needing things like scleral lenses. They can do very well with other types of options for vision correction. That's very true. And we do have lots of options, which is wonderful. Mm -hmm. So we have glasses, we have soft contact lenses, we have corneal gas permeable lenses, hybrid lenses, scleral lenses, and one or more option could be available for even one person. Yeah. And the truth is when we look at our numbers, so one of the things that the iBank Association does is it looks at statistics for all of the corneas that are transplanted through U.S. iBanks. And we do see a downward trend in corneal transplantation in terms of a full thickness corneal transplantation um, and the number of transplants that patients who have keratoconus are undergoing. So it is very exciting. Yeah, that is true. And how do you think those numbers will look in 10 years or 20 years? Do you think the numbers will continue to decline? I actually do. So I think I am working myself out of a job, or maybe Dr. Barnett, you are working me out of a job. One of us (laughs) is doing it, but that is the hope, right? The hope is that we have better options for patients so that they don't need a corneal transplantation for conditions like keratoconus. I think there's always going to be a place for corneal transplantation for other types of diseases and entities, but hopefully for keratoconus, the more we are screening patients early on and get them into uh, cross-linking procedures, I think the likelihood of having fewer and fewer patients go to transplantation is quite high. I definitely agree. So in keratoconus, when is a corneal transplant indicated? I always tell patients that the time for a corneal transplantation is when things like glasses, contact lenses, scleral contact lenses are no longer improving your vision to the point that you need, whatever that means for you. Um, And so it's really about vision. It's about patient's vision with correction, of course, not without correction. I always care about vision with some sort of correction. Um, And I want to make sure that my patients can have the quality of life that they want. Again, whatever that means for them. So for some people, they're very content with a certain level of vision, and that's great. They can do all the things they want to do with their contact lenses and their glasses, and we leave them alone, right? Because they're happy they can do all the things they want to do. Um, And for some people, that's going to look a little bit different. A lot of times it comes down to things like driving, wanting to have adequate vision for driving. Um, And so that can be often the the deciding line for a lot of patients. It's very true. And driving can provide a lot of independence. Dr. Lee, a question that often comes up is how long does a corneal transplant last? That is a fantastic question. The reality is that full thickness corneal transplantations, what a lot of our keratoconus patients have had, are extraordinarily successful. When we look at 10-year, 11-year outcomes, it's about 75% success rate for corneal transplant in sort of lower risk situations. I find that my keratoconus patients actually do very, very well overall with corneal transplantation. And we've all as corneal surgeons have seen patients who have had a transplant last 30 years, 40 years. And I think what patients have to understand is that with our techniques and our transplantation options in this day and age, just because a transplant fails doesn't necessarily mean you have to redo the whole thing. So for instance, a lot of our keratoconus patients have a full thickness corneal transplant to start. And if that transplant were to fail long-term over time, 
there is the option of potentially doing a partial thickness transplant to help revitalize that older transplant so that they don't have to do the whole thing all over again. And that is a really nice option for our patients who have been potentially happy with their transplants for years and years and years. Excellent. The, it's a quality of life. Wanting the people to be able to enjoy their lives without feeling like their vision is impairing them. That is true. And there have been multiple studies looking at this uh, quality of life in keratoconus and the importance of cross-linking early, mm-hmm. fitting scleral lenses early to improve quality of life. Yeah. And it's been good. Early on, it was harder to get insurances to cover things like cross-linking. And now I think more and more insurances are uh, including cross-linking in their coverage. And so that has made it a lot more accessible for my patients. This is correct, even in the last few years, fortunately. Yes. Since there are many different types of corneal transplants, how do you determine which type of corneal transplant to perform? And then the question, most importantly, the fun question is, what is your favorite type of corneal transplant to perform and why? Oh, that's like trying to choose between your children, Dr. Burnett. I'm not sure that I'll be able to, but we'll try. We'll talk about that. I'll avoid answering the question, which is my favorite transplant for a while. The beautiful thing about corneal transplantation in this day and age is that our techniques and our technology has gotten us to the point where we are in an era of what we call selective keratoplasty. So 20 or 30 years ago, if you were to have a corneal transplant, there was basically one kind of corneal transplant you were going to get. You were going to get the entire cornea from front to back, all 540 microns of it replaced, even if parts of it were perfectly fine, right? And now we have the technology, we have the techniques that have been developed so that we can really try and select out the areas of the cornea that are abnormal or diseased or problematic, remove those and replace just those areas. So for instance, someone with keratoconus, if they have not had a condition like high drops where the cornea actually gets a lot of swelling and there's breaks in the corneal tissue, theoretically, you could just remove the abnormal anterior parts of the cornea with a, we call an anterior lamellar keratoplasty and leave the back layers, which are perfectly healthy in most keratoconus patients behind. Um, What that does is it really decreases things like the risk of rejection or even sort of long-term complications associated with the transplant. It decreases the risk of complications at the time of surgery. And so it's a great procedure for patients who have a healthy backside of their cornea, such as patients with keratoconus. In more severe cases of keratoconus, unfortunately, that isn't always an option. And sometimes we have to do all layers of the cornea. And then, and there are other conditions, not keratoconus, but other conditions such as um, something called Fuchs corneal dystrophy, where the very back layer of the cornea is diseased. And nowadays we're really able to replace those um, in a much more efficient and effective manner. I don't know that I have a favorite procedure. You have a favorite technique? I like them all the same, Dr. Barnett, <laughs> and I like to make sure that my techniques are appropriate for my patients. I will say, though, I really, I love, this is going to sound totally crazy. I love all the new techniques, but there is something very therapeutic to me about suturing. So some of these newer techniques don't require as much suturing. So 
they're kind of slick. They're really a lot safer for patients at the end of the day. But the older technique with all those stitches, there's something very meditative or just therapeutic about putting those stitches in. I think it's kind of like, I don't crochet, but it's my impression of people who knit and crochet that it becomes sort of this muscle memory and it becomes very therapeutic. <laughs> well, that is great. And all of you listening, you should know how great of a surgeon Dr. Lee is too. And I've seen many of these transplants and they are just gorgeous, absolutely beautiful. Which leads to my next question, which is actually about corneal sutures. In both of our clinics, we're often asked if contact lenses can be fit with intact corneal sutures. And I know my answer, but I've never asked you, what do you say to our patients? <laughs> I get that question a lot. I just had that question very, very recently. You, Dr. Barnett, probably are aware of my practice patterns, which is I often send you patients for contact lens fitting with all of their corneal sutures intact. I think that patients... I could be wrong, but I think patients care very much, not just about their best vision in their contact lens, but also what their vision is like when their contact lens is not in place. And often the corneal sutures, if they are doing a good job of helping maintain a certain level of what we call uncorrected visual acuity, I will actually leave them in place unless they break or loosen on their own. If they break or loosen on their own, they have to come out. That becomes a concern for things like infection. But otherwise, if they're creating a shape of the cornea that is giving my patients pretty darn good vision, even without a contact lens, then I actually just leave them in place and send them to you so that they can get even better vision with the contact. But when their contact's not out, they don't feel like they're going to have a problem running out of a burning building, which is what they often say to me as well. Right. But it's so true. Contact lenses can very safely be fit uh, with intact corneal sutures. If there's one that's loose or it needs to be removed, it can induce a lot of astigmatism and it can definitely change the shape of the cornea. So then I want to see the patient back. But it's a question that comes up all the time. It is. Maybe correct me if I'm wrong. I assume it's sort of a throwback to older types of contact lens technology where Maybe it was harder to fit. I don't know. Is that true or not? I feel like the newest, newer technology is a little easier. The newer technology is much more precise. And Perfect. so we have options to really customize mm-hmm. lenses like we never could before. And with our diagnostic technology, we can measure the cornea and the conjunctiva, the shape of the eye, even better than we ever could before. I think it's amazing what you guys can do. And some of the eyes I send you, kudos to you to getting my patients the vision that they have. That was super fun. So what's the future of surgical management for keratoconus? Again, I hope it doesn't put me out of a job in my lifetime, but I certainly think over time, keratoconus will become less and less of a surgical condition and more and more of a medical or less invasive type of condition that we're treating. Again, the hope is really with cross-linking, that as cross-linking technology gets better, as we get better at doing it, as we understand better the patients who benefit from it, that that will really reduce the patients who come in to see us with advanced keratoconus and giving them options outside of the realm of corneal transplants. Again, I think keratoconus is one of those conditions where in the future, it's not going to be a huge piece of that 
transplantation pie. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us on Clearly KC. Please listen to the Clearly KC podcast on Podbean or your favorite podcast app to subscribe and get future episodes. For now, I'm Dr. Melissa Barnett. Please join us next time on Clearly KC. Thank you, Dr. Lee. Thanks so much, Dr. Barnett.